0: Hello and welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm David Gottlieb. I'm speaking today with Sarah Hammerschlag, Associate Professor of Religion and Literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Professor Hammerschlag's research has centered on the position and influence of Judaism in the intellectual life of post-war France. Her 2010 book, The Figural Jew Politics and Identity in Postwar French Thought, traced the revalorization of the figure of the wandering Jew by Sartre, Blanchot, Derrida, and other postmodernist philosophers after World War II. Her latest book is Broken Tablets Levinas, Derrida, and the Literary Afterlife of Religion, published by Columbia University Press. In this work, Professor Hammerschlag traces the admiring and at times oppositional Relationship and Philosophical Kinship Between Emmanuel Levinas and Jacques Derrida. And she explores the ramifications of this relationship for religion, philosophy, literature, and political theology, among other uh, streams of intellectual endeavor. Professor Hammerschlag, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. So a conversation about these two authors could take Um, days, and uh, I I don't want to take days with you. I don't think that would be fair to you, but I'm eager to launch into an exploration of the thought of each of these philosophers and their deep and sometimes troubled relationship with each other and with Judaism writ large. And maybe the best way to start is to ask you to sort of set up the book for us. Tell us a little bit about what led you um, in this research direction, and a little bit about the relationship between Levinas and Derrida.
1: Sure. I mean, in many ways, the book came out naturally from the first book I wrote, The Figural Jew, um, which has a chapter on Levinas and a chapter on Derrida. And when I was writing both the chapter on Derrida and on Maurice Blanchot, you know, it really struck me that for both of them, their representation is often mediated by Levinas. Um, and so, in many ways, those two chapters work out some of the issues that get developed in this book. But the book itself really began with what is actually the first chapter. Um, So it began with this um, visit that Derrida made to the Colloque des Intellectuels Jurifs de Française, which was this almost annual colloquium um, in Paris that, that met between 1957 and the year 2000. And Levinas was one of the real central members. He was a founding member and he gave a um, Talmudic reading at every single one of the meetings until the 90s, really, um, and through the 80s. Um, and there is a story that appears that, that, that Derrida tells um, when he makes what seems to be his first visit to the Kuluk, which is in 1998. So it's two years after Levinas's death. Um, but he tells a story about this um, biographical accounts of Levinas, um, in which the biographer um, actually describes in describing the cloak and all of the French Jewish intellectuals who went there actually said that Derrida would never have shown up there. Um, that it was one place in which one would never see Derrida. And the irony is, of course, had in fact been there. Um, he And he'd been there um, because Levinas had, in fact, invited him there. And so in 1998, um, Derrida telling this story. And so he, in telling the story, he already positions himself as very much on the outside of what the French Jewish intellectual scene was in Paris. And at the same time, he signals that his relationship to that community was mediated by Levinas. Right. So it's an attempt So the interest in thinking about the relationship is thinking about both this mediation, the way in which Levinas mediated this relationship to Judaism for Derrida. It's also an attempt to retell what has become a kind of standard story in um, Levinas and Derrida's scholarship as a consequence of a couple books that essentially try to show that there is a kind of ethical um, force to Derrida's later writing. And insofar as that story gets told, it always gets told that, that it's his proximity to Levinas that reveals to us the kind of ethical force behind Derrida's later writing. And it tends to have the effect of eliding the difference between the two of them.
0: Right. So and- I'd love you to say more about that, about, um, it seems from reading your book, which I really enjoyed, that there is both a commonality and a difference informed both by Levinas's, uh, strong ethical orientation, obviously, and Derrida's um, deconstructionist orientation where everything is already always mediated and that an essential truth can't be gotten at. How did they come to have a relationship where they could even communicate in a deep way about what each other was saying?
1: Yeah, well, so um, despite the fact that they're of different generations, um, so, so Levinas is about 20 years older than Derrida, so let's mm-hmm. in 1906. Yeah, it's a little over 20 years older. They actually entered French academia around the same time because in the uh, post-war context, Levinas for a long time was really on the outskirts of academia insofar as he was the director of a Jewish school. Right. Um, so Derrida went through a kind of more traditional route um, since they did the Hippokane, and then he... Um, had a position that was kind of the equivalent of what we call a kind of lecturer at ENS, right. Um, and he begins to make his way into the kind of the, the central world of, of French academia in about the same moment that Levinas does despite their age difference. Um, and so Derrida is one of the first people to really, actually he is the first to write a real critical essay, um, Totality and Infinity, um, Levinas's first major work. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he began to want to write that, he actually decided that the best way to do it was to befriend. In the, after he'd written the first part of it, but he didn't tell Levinas that he'd written the first part. Of it. He just started attending Levinas's class, and so they developed a friendship actually around a shared interest in Edmond Jabez, who is a Egyptian French poet um, who. You know, probably not too many people were reading in those years. Mm -hmm. Um, And they began to talk about Jabez, but also to talk about philosophy. They both have a background in phenomenology. And so I think, I mean, I'm just speculating here, but I'm not sure how clear the difference between them was to Levinas, even if it was very clear to Derrida, when they first became friends. But then Derrida gave to Levinas the first part of violence and metaphysics. Um, and uh, which had already been published, so he gave it to him as it was being published, and then he gave him the second part, which had not yet been published. Um, and of course, it's a very, it's a very critical essay in some ways of um, Levinas. And so, you know, I think with that, Derrida is the one who always insists upon the proximity between them, not Levinas. Mm-hmm. Levinas, in fact, I think often really emphasizes the fact that they're at crossroads to one another. Right. Um, whereas Derrida. Seems to emphasize the sense in which they're fellow travelers, um, and what I want to argue in the book is that, in fact, despite Derrida always articulating this proximity, in fact, insofar as he writes about Levinas, he's actually signaling their difference and the misunderstandings and the reception of the two of them.
0: It's really, really interesting. I'd like lo- I'd like you too, if you could, to talk a little bit about um, the figure of Abraham and the role that the binding of Isaac uh, plays in uh, Derrida's work. As, as I recall from reading the book, um, the fact that the tablets are broken, that there is something unfathomable but in some way essential about Judaism, is traced, I believe it's in his thinking, to the binding of Isaac and the, and the betrayal of the son by the father. Is that right? And can you talk a little bit about the role right. of that play yeah, that played in the evolution yeah. of his thought?
1: Yeah, so let me first say that the, the, the image of the Broken Tablets comes out of this essay that Derrida wrote about Chavez,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which in Writing and Difference is set just next to just before violence and metaphysics. And I actually don't think that that's coincidental. Uh Um, I think there's a way in which the essay on Jabez actually signals two ways of thinking about post-war Judaism. And that one of those is Levinas's Avenue, one that Derrida lays out in violence and metaphysics. And the other is that, is that is the one that Derrida sees himself as pursuing. And that, that I argue in the book that it's a kind of literary Avenue. Mm -hmm. Now what does that have to do with Abraham? So the Jabez material, um, Goes back to the early 60s, as does the essay "The Files of Metaphysics." But um, the book "The Gift of Death" comes out of seminars in the early 90s. And um, the book "The Gift of Death" um, has at its heart one of the sort of texts that Derrida is reading um, is, you know, Kierkegaard's um, account right. of the,
0: fear and right? trembling.
1: Fear and trembling, mm-hmm. exactly. So, um, so in some sense, Kierkegaard is the is is already a metal level for Derrida to read The Binding of Isaac's story. Um, But then he adds another level and that level is is Kafka's letter to his father. Um, And so he reads Kafka's letter to his father as itself a kind of retelling of The Binding of Isaac's story. And in this essay, um, Literature in Secret, which is appended into the later English version of Gift of Death, um, he essentially argues that the story of religion and literature goes back to the binding of Isaac, um, that the covenantal relationship between um, Abraham and God takes the form of a secret um, in the sense that, that, um, that that Abraham is, is given the responsibility not only to sacrifice his son, but to keep a secret and that there's something at stake in the very structure of religion that, is about the maintenance of this secret, but also the ramifications of its betrayal. Hmm. That the secret that is in scene two and there, he's thinking very much of um, the way in which Kierkegaard understands religion, where the ethical is universal and, you know, the, the religious is that which kind of supersedes that universal and, and, and violates it in a certain way. Right. Um, he's thinking very much of that. And yet the fact that the reason that we have the story of the binding of Isaac is because the secret is always already told. It's always already canonized Mm -hmm. and that that involves a kind of betrayal. And the dynamic of religion is is often about the kind of maintenance of the perpetuation of secrecy and the dealing with the betrayal. And that literature essentially is the inheritor of that kind of legacy. Um, It's a legacy that where there's always the kind of betrayal of a secret that has to do with the capacity to read something that, of course, is a kind of internal story that you feel that sense of betrayal, but that it advertises its own betrayal. It lets you know that it's a betrayal. It lets you know that the very the very function of fiction, in some sense, Derrida says, always tells you that you're taking part in a secrecy that has already been in some sense broken or shared.
0: Right. And in a way, uh, he re- this is one way that he's sort of at interpretive cross purposes with Levinas. Isn't that right?
1: Well, insofar as he sees this, he sees liter- the legacy of literature as a positive inheritance from religion. Right. So the other thing he's out in the book is the way in which for Levinas in the 1950s, literature was a problematic category. And I argue that it was a problematic category for him because in the post-war French context, there was a kind of competition over where, the, where civilization was going to find its spiritual center. Mm-hmm, because and there religion
0: questions. was out of the question sort of at that point.
1: It wasn't right? necessarily out of the question because there was... You know, Catholic personalism, which was a kind of Catholic revival, and there was a Jewish revival, but if you look at the kind of reception behind, like, Sartre's What is Literature and a series of essays that relate to it, there's a sense in which there are those who are claiming that literature can be the kind of spiritual inheritance of the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and Levinas very much wants to articulate religion as an alternative to that. And insofar as he's articulating as an alternative, he's rejecting literature. So Mm -hmm. I see Derrida as taking up that avenue that that Levinas has rejected.
0: Right. Now, uh, I'd love also to see if I could... Uh, better understand the concept of trace in the works of the two philosophers and how they encounter each other around this concept. If I understand it at all, um, Levinas seems to me to see the traces indicating sort of the unreachable origin or order of creation, a a kind of inaccessible uh, but aboriginal realm. And for Derrida, it's occultation of the self, but in both cases, something original can't be reached, so, so presentation and interpretation are forms or facilitators not only of communication but also of duplicity and of a lack of ability to find an aboriginal truth. This, this strikes me as a Jewish idea or a Jewish hermeneutical stance. Is that something that strikes you in the work of these two around the subject of the trace?
1: I mean, I'm always uncomfortable with claiming a particular idea as as being Jewish um, because I have, because I think the issue, I think that Levinas is very interested in finding certain ideas as having that kind of um, exemplarity to them, being able to claim that they have Jewish origin. So I think Levinas might make that claim, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that Derrida would. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's bracket that for a second. So Levinas seems to be the one who first utilized this term and, and Derrida, um, Starts inserting it into his work, I think, after having encountered it in Levinas. But for for Levinas, what's at stake in the trace? It's a way of talking about the fact that the relationship to the other person is one that doesn't involve presence. Right. So that when I look at the other person, I can't grasp them. There is something that escapes, um, and there are, at different points in his writings, he does that somewhat differently and more theologically at sometimes than others. But it is a way of talking about God's absence is nonetheless inflecting my relationship to the other person. Uh-huh. So how does Derrida employ and alter that understanding? Um, I think he wants to show that this relationship, this, this subverting of, a, of this idea of a metaphysics of presence becomes a term that Derrida begins to use really prominently in of grammatology, that that's always actually at stake. In fact, in any conceptual operation, but that text becomes, textuality becomes the means by which he describes the trace. So Mm -hmm. for for Derrida, it it suggests both the way in which we're always searching for that presence, that origin, Mm -hmm. that anchoring space, but also the way in which it's always deferred.
0: Right. And here we're talking about presence, both as a kind of a Heideggerian temporal phenomenon, but also presence as, in other words, it's not only being present, it is being in the presence of. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that that's fair. I mean, I think it's the sense that we, when we talk about sign, I mean, so Derrida speaks about it very articulately when he talks about the sign. When we talk about the sign, we always assume that the sign is replacing its reference, but that it points towards it. And so when we think about the way in which signs work, there's always this kind of hope or this aspiration to get to the thing itself. Right.
0: To get or, to the bottom of it somehow.
1: Right. Yeah. Or so this also goes back to a kind of Husserlian phenomenological dynamic where the reduction, the phenomenological reduction is oriented towards the object's presence to consciousness. Mm-hmm. So Derrida shows very clearly in relation to Husserl that that's actually not something that ever actually appears. That in fact, the, the object is never actually fully present to consciousness, that it's only... Um, always already duplicated and represented to uh-huh, consciousness. Uh-huh. So there are various ways in which he tells the story, some of them by way of the history of metaphysics, some through phenomenology. But in each case, what he shows is that these, these systems, whether they're um, systems of signification or that they're a phenomenological understanding of how objects appear to consciousness, in all of these cases, they're always stipulated on the promise of presence, but a promise mm. that's never fulfilled.
0: Okay. Very interesting. You know, from my own sort of uh, personal research orientation, I had a question for you about um, your reference to Derrida as sometimes thought of as a postmodern Kabbalist. And the reason it's interesting to me is that you mention early on in the book uh, a sort of hermeneutic procedure uh, that Derrida uses in his negotiation of his Jewish identity, and that is the si, the as mm-hmm. if, which... Yeah. Uh, Your colleague, Michael Fishbane, uh, says is key to the exegetical construction of reality uh, in works of rabbinic midrash. In other words, as if becomes uh, in Hebrew, ke'ilu becomes sort of a key which turns the tumblers of reality so that the, the essential, the essence of something is transformed. And I wonder if. Derrida, so I have a two-part question. One is, is Derrida in any ways a Midrashist? Mm -hmm. And could you also talk about him as a postmodern Kabbalist?
1: Right. Okay, so there was this, I just had a student talking to me about this very issue. Um, And in fact, when I came initially to study at the Divinity School, one of the things I was interested in was that question, was there a relationship between these post-structuralist theories of language and Midrash? And there was this period in the 80s in which there were there were a number of books that you know tried to make that claim in certain different ways. Um, uh, and um, for example, Susan Handelman's work, um, *Slayers of Moses*, is one of these books
0: yes, that that, right, right.
1: that does try to make that that claim. Um, and in fact, my my dissertation, which became the Figural Jew, began with that kind of question. But I ultimately found that the question itself was actually problematic. Because involved in the question itself, I think – and Derrida addresses this question in many ways in Archive Fever because he addresses Urshalmi's attempt to say that that Freud's procedures are themselves already Jewish. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the kind of dangers of wanting to say something like certain procedures actually belong to certain traditions. Well, it's true,
0: right. And you mentioned that uh, as far as a question I asked earlier, and it was interesting because I was – uh, you know, there's there's often a, a rush to claim certain procedures or or tendencies or technologies as belonging to a particular tradition, but sometimes they are more aboriginal in that. They go back further than the tradition, or they're deeper than the tradition, or they're other than the tradition. Is that the case here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple things to say about it. I mean, one is that the minute one starts, with, so like you're a Shami in his book on um, Freud's Moses, you know, says something like he wants to actually claim hope as Jewish, right? That there's <laughs> yeah. there's something about the sort of messianic aspiration that makes hope fundamentally Jewish. But I think what's important to note, and I think it's something that Derrida points out, is that when you start thinking that way, then you have to protect these terms. You have to protect them from other traditions that that, that want to claim them. And then there's a kind of competition over universals, right? Right. It isn't to say that there aren't specific histories that, of course, that make all of these kind of secularized notions elements of religious heritage. Of course they are. But what's at stake in calling um, Derrida something like a, a, a postmodern Kabbalist? Well, I mean, first of all, when has goes back, that he had no background in those
0: traditions. Right, right, right.
1: So if you're going to claim that, on what grounds are you claiming it? That in some sort of how it's just in his blood? And then you ask yourself, well, do I want to think that somehow in his blood? Um, what What's the nature of arguing for those resonances and on what grounds does one make those claims? Um, So I've been much more interested in going at questions that are not so far off from those, but in thinking about the way in which figures who are kind of part of the afterlife of traditions take up and receive these traditions and repurpose them. And do I think that one can claim that there's something that that makes this repurposing of these traditions a part of Jewish thought? Yeah, to some extent, I think one can say that. Is it because they are somehow steeped in the tradition? No, I think it's because they're they're positioning themselves in a kind of critical relationship to the tradition that takes these traditions, these structures, and repurposes them for very different functions.
0: Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Could you talk a little bit about? Um, at a certain point in the book, you talk about, uh, and, and this seems to me to be one of the more direct uh, differences. Uh, between Levinas and Derrida, and that is Levinas's, uh evident and very sort of, uh, I wouldn't say strident, but his very forceful Zionism. And yeah. it seems as though uh, Derrida occupies a position on the margins, and because of his experience of and perspective from what I would call the margins, which it might be too facile to say it's because of his Background in Algeria and getting asked to leave or suspended from a couple of different schools But but he takes the approach of an outsider that seems Ultimately to mean that he cannot negotiate an accommodation with the idea of Zionism which Levinas Mm -hmm. strongly takes up How did that affect Derrida's? uh, Perception of an encounter with Levinas's work.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I, I make an argument about that in the book But I do I think I have a definitive answer to it probably no because it has been mediated through something like the book Adieu to Emmanuel Levinas, uh-huh. in which um, what Derrida does is he never actually criticizes Levinas's position um, on Zionism. Instead, he argues that there's a basis in Levinas's work um, when he talks about, um, you know, a revelation before Sinai um, that actually has the structures in it also to be critical of Zionism. <laughs> um, so how does this affect Der- Derrida's relationship to Levinas' work, that there, there are certain moments in which I see Derrida trying to show that Levinas' resources that would work against the Zionist appropriation, right. and he wants to essentially argue that Levinas' work can be read that way and should be read that way. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that's against the grain of all of these essays that Levinas himself wrote in which he seems to want to suggest the state of Israel is the kind of apotheosis of a kind of prophetic politics. Right. Now there are many people who read that move in Levinas to have a critical function in relationship to Zionism. Um, so Derry not exactly out of the norm in wanting to see that in Levinas. But I think to do that for Levinas, one has to kind of really ignore certain moments in these essays in which he seems to very strongly want to claim that the tradition of Israel that, that Israel as a state has to be supported because it is the inheritor of this tradition of 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 what's 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 called prophetic
0: politics. Right. Okay. You know, I was fascinated too by your epilogue and the story, I don't want to give anything away, but you paint a very compelling picture about the hushed and solemn security at the Derrida Archive at at University of California at Irvine, which sort of brings this rich irony to the surface about, about the secrecy and the secret and the sort of hushed reverence for words that have to be read and interpreted and are sort of being interpreted by the very environment that they're kept in. Can you right. talk a little bit about that experience and how it informed the your work as a whole in this book?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean the epilogue is the strange thing and I and I, you know, a couple of asked me, like it seems so at odds with the rest of the book. Partly what I wanted to do there was to show that even as I'm strongly trying to differentiate religion from literature in order to kind of make a case for a politics that sometimes owes more to literature than it does to religion. At mm-hmm. the same time, I want to reveal the way in which uh, we have these institutional structures that end up replicating the power dynamics that are so endemic to maintaining the secrecy at the heart of religion right. that right. you repeat yeah. in the context of something like the study of literature or with these, quote-unquote, secular scholars. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of you know, outing the way in which we keep repeating these structures. But I also want to suggest that there's something about the way they get repeated within literature. And that's where I, that's where, so there's this Henry James story. This is the center of the epilogue. And I want to show how the secret works in the Henry James story to show that there's something about the way that literature deals with secrecy that both replicates the dynamics that one finds in religious communities, but that at the same time it allows to experience it, desire it, and yet, also have a kind of ironic relationship to it that literature is able to expose that somehow the sort of structures of religious community make more difficult for us to inhabit in that
0: way. Really interesting. And speaking of the, rep, the sort of repetition or replication of structures, I was struck in reading uh, about these two philosophers and reading about their environments and their circumstances and reading about how, for example, Abraham, as the father feeds in, how very patriarchal all of this is. Mm. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Oh, that's, that's a very good point. Um, so, you're right in the sense that what you have here is a story of fathers and sons, mm-hmm. and the story of fathers and sons is always a story of betrayal, and I you know, argue that there's something about a kind of replication of the relationship of father and sons that gets repeated in the Levinas and Derrida's relationship. Um, and yet, the other factor to their relationship is this essay that Derrida wrote um, about Levinas in which he essentially tries to show that he sees in Levinas's own work a kind of resistance to the feminine. And again, he's not alone in seeing that. Um, he's not alone. In, I mean, so for example, in Italian Infinity, there's a sense in which um, the ethical relationship follows from a kind of erotic relationship. So the erotic relationship is not given the status of the the kind of stepping stone. It's not actual otherness. Uh-huh. And so one of the ways in which Darida relates to Levinas is very much in kind of – is a, is in a kind of feminist reading of him. So how does that answer the question of whether or not this is
0: patriarchal? Or, I mean, it depends
1: on – and insofar as it's about two men, certainly.
0: But has, um, it, has it perhaps moved us – Or you know, did their encounter and their work move us toward less – sort of patriarchal perspectives on political theology or the afterlife of religion, to borrow from yeah. your subtitle. Right,
1: right. No, that's that's a better way of putting it. Um, I mean, I think so in the sense that, again, one of the things that I think that literature is able to do insofar as we see it replicating these structures of power the thing that I can find the most compelling about Derrida's work is that he never claims that we can get fully out of these sorts of structures of power, things mm-hmm. like patriarchy, but he does claim to be able to reveal the way they work in a way that allows us to inhabit them and relate to them differently. Right. Um, and I think one of the arguments of the book is that what it means to think about the relationship between religion and literature is that it has this potential for allowing us to think about religious texts differently and literary texts. insofar mm-hmm. as one sees the relationship is showing us these dynamics. So what effect does that have on patriarchy? It doesn't mean that we get out of it, but it does mean that we can inhabit it, say, with our t- cheek, right? So in right. the Henry James story, there's a sense in which the woman in that story is very much this kind of, um, this, this currency being negotiated and passed around, um, and so the question is, is there something about the way in which we can read differently that allows us to become aware or cognizant of these structures um, right. that loosens up their hold on us
0: uh-huh and and that is a great question to ask regarding all sorts of texts, not only religious but literary as well yeah, right uh, our time is already up somehow. I was afraid this was going to happen it's a uh, it's. It is delightful talking to you. Um, I greatly enjoyed your book. Again, the book is Broken, Broken Tablets, Levinas, Derrida, and the Literary Afterlife of Religion. And I've been speaking with the author, Sarah Hammerschlag, Associate Professor of Religion and Literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Professor Hammerschlag, thank you so much for speaking with me.
1: Thanks for having me and for being such a close reader of the book. It's a real pleasure to engage with somebody who's read it recently and read it so well.
0: It was my pleasure. Thanks again.